Behind every farm, winemaker, bottle, and grape lies an untold story. This is Behind the Bottle, a monthly podcast by Cape Classics, a South African and French wine importer founded in 1992. We are committed to discovering and sharing these tales. I am Mary Ellen Phillips, and in today's episode, we are chatting with Lars Mack, proprietor of Batenvervachten in Constantia, South Africa. Thank you for joining us, Lars. Uh, thank you for having me. Okay, so let's kick off with Constantia. South Africa is generally considered to be New World country, um, just like Australia. But really, areas like Constantia, they've been making wine for 350 years. So that doesn't feel super New World to me. Batenbrevachten also plays a pretty big part in Constantia's history. So could you tell us about Constantia as a region, some of the history, and a little bit about the farm's background? So I guess a lot of people um, believe South Africa is New World because we um, sort of we, we entered the international stage again after our first uh, full free democratic election, which were in 1994. And uh, but in actual fact, our our region Constantia started in 1685. So on the 2nd of February this year, we turned 334 years. If you correlate this over to Bordeaux to Medoc, we're about 50 years older than Medoc. Um, which yeah definitely makes us ranks us amongst the oldest one of the oldest wine growing regions, um, and that's where where we fit in with Baden Verwachting. Definitely doesn't feel uh, as new world when you lay it out that way. Yeah, we are. So the farm itself, Baden Baden as as it's known in America, but Baden Verwachting is the full name and meaning beyond the expectations. We start in 1769, so even our brand name uh, is 250 years old exactly this year. But we date back to the original farm in Constantia, and as I said, that's 1685. Can you take us through the farm's history? I know that it changed hands uh, through different families and that different people were in control in the area in different times. Yes, so Batenverwachting, as I said, dates back to the original farm Constantia. Constantia was founded by the first governor of the Cape in 1685. But um, the farm was so excessively large, it was bigger than Amsterdam where his bosses lived. So when they finally found out how large the property was, or the estate was, um, it was then subdivided and five portions were auctioned off. And Batenverwachting is one of the original um, five parcels. My father acquired the farm in 1981. Um, but at that stage, through you know all the changes that we had in Cape from... Dutch rule, English rule, then Afrikaans rule, then um, the first free, free uh, democratic uh, South Africa. Uh, ownerships changed dramatically, um, and so you know went through several several families. So when my father acquired the farm, the beautiful old homestead, all the old monuments were still um, intact, but the farm itself was completely run down, and there was no farming activity when it came to vineyards. Uh, the last time the Batenverwachting was under vines was about 80 years uh, before my father bought it. So the entire farm was overgrown with 80-year-old eucalyptus trees. And uh, only then in, 92, in 81, 82, did we start replanting. And the first wines uh, were released then in 1985, 1986. And when did you take over from your father? So my, my family is originally from Germany. And my mother started getting a bit homesick. And in 1990, she wanted to move back to Germany. 
Uh, I left South Africa already, and um, my father felt that it had to be a family-run run farm. And I think I was the cheapest laborer in our family, so it was offered to me. And in 1990, I moved them back from Germany to South Africa and took over running the farm. And Lars, you touched on this a little bit earlier. Um, in the U.S., we do refer to Baten-Burbachen as Baten. How did you guys come up with that nickname, or how did it come to be? Yeah, Andre, the CEO of uh, Cape Plastics, has asked me for many years to change our names for the States. And I never want to do that. I always felt that this is our authentic name and it shouldn't be changed. And if you go to Scotland and uh, you speak to the whiskey producers, I don't think they will change their name either. So I felt very strongly about keeping our name and especially that it's got 250 years of history and a beautiful meaning. Um, I decided I'm not going to change my name. But then the one day, um, Andre and I, we had lunch together and the neighboring table ordered our wine. And instead of saying Baton for Wachting, they just asked for the Baton Sauvignon Blanc. And Andre wanted to know what they were drinking. And I said, look, that day, you know, most people in South Africa um, refer to us just as Baton instead of Baton for Wachting. It's just our nickname. And uh, from there onwards, we decided, OK, let's let's play with the idea of just using uh, Baton as our main name. But I'm still very adamant that, um, and it's very important to us, that we still have the full name represented in packaging. So in the uh, capsule and on the label and on the back label, uh, we still refer to it as Baton Verwachting, but the main, the main label, the main brand will just say Baton, just to make it easier for the American market. I have found that press does still refer to it as Baton Verwachting instead of Baton, keeping the traditional name. Because they're so used to it and accustomed. <laughs> yeah, I think you also find that some journalists were finally able to pronounce the name. Um, mm -hmm. We started getting the nickname, not Baton for Wachting, but Bite Me for Watching. And, <laughs> um, you know, that was one of the reasons why, why I was quite happy to, to make it a bit easier for the American market. But I guess the, um, the journalists started getting their tongue around our name and they felt very qualified to use it. So when we made it easier again, they, they, um, <laughs> they were a little bit... Uh, <laughs> a bit irritated about it. <laughs> but consumers definitely have found it easier to say. I mean, us, it, it rolls off our tongue because we're, we're used to talking about the wines all the time, but I get it. Tell me, Lars, a little bit about the Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay. You guys have had years and years of consistent, really favorable, positive press for a reason. And we're probably biased here at Cape Classics, but we think you make some of the most exciting Sauvignon Blanc in the new world. Quote, unquote, new world, I guess I should say. Tell us about the wines. When I took over the farm for my parents, um, I had about 14, 15 different varietals um, uh, planted here. So we had Pinot Gris, we had Gewürztraminer, we had Riesling, Sauvignon, Chardonnay, everything else. Um, and I just felt we were too diversified and I wanted to specialize. But on the other hand, it also gave me a, a great cross-section of seeing where is the greatness uh, of our property. And we were consistently doing well with Sauvignon. We were consistently doing well with Chardonnay. And that's because of our close prox proximity to both oceans. So we are close to the Indian Ocean as well as the Atlantic Ocean. Each ocean is about uh, three to four miles away from us. And they've got a very strong cooling effect. Um, the Atlantic Ocean is so cold that hardly anybody swims in it. And if you're mad enough to do it, you better wear um, a wetsuit. Um, but that cool sea breeze gives us a really special climate. And we have abnormally high rainfall. It's about 20% higher, 30% higher than London. Um, and it's something that Sauvignon really enjoys having. Um, Sauvignon is looking for 
a very moderate climate where you you get full ripeness, but your fruit doesn't stew in the heat. Um, so, and that's exactly what uh, what we have in Constantia, and that's combined with very old old um, granite soils. And if I say old, again, um, we don't only have a lot of history with uh, respect to our wine history, but our soils are also regarded as one of the oldest soils in the world. Um, and that obviously over the last 400, 500 million years, the granite decayed. And so we've got very, very deep soils, but also very rich soils. And again, that's something that our Sauvignon really enjoys. And uh, we're trying to develop the Sauvignon out of those classic, typical grassy, green, herbaceous flavors into the more unusual, very ripe uh, fruit flavors. And they are more yellow fruit flavors, you get more the melons, you get more the yellow apples, the Cape gooseberries. So hopefully a lot more charming uh, wine than having the more harder, grassier flavors. We're looking for charm and sort of sex appeal mm-hmm. in our wines. Definitely. And you mentioned the rainfall. Um, because you usually, in well, non-drought season, do have more rainfall, I would imagine that would mean you don't need to use as much irrigation. If you look at our plantings, we have um, just over 100 hectares planted on the farm. So it's about over 200 acres. Uh, 10% of our planting is under irrigation. 90% is dry land. But what is more um, special in a way is that about 20% of our vineyards actually have um, drainage so that there's not too much water in the vineyards. Mm-hmm. Um, with our excessive rainfalls, or my, my European uh, friends always tell me I should be planting rice and not vineyards because it's <laughs> just, it's even, even in Germany, you find that we have, if you look at the Mosul, the Mosul has about 500 millimeters of rain. We have double that. Um, so it's, it's, it's a really good, healthy rainfall that we have. And the good thing for us is it's all concentrated in in uh, winter and in springtime. But summer is reliably warm and dry so that we have very healthy fruit and don't pro- have any problems with uh, rot. And what are some challenges that you face in the vineyards? Uh, you know, you get you always get the odd, odd rainfall and uh, you've got to, you know, try to manage that. Um, but in general, as I said, you know, we have very a very reliable climate. Um, one of the problems maybe from a moisture perspective is that at nighttime we've got, we get that very cold, wet sea, sea air coming over the farm and the farm is in, completely wet. Um, so that can pose a problem, but we leave a lot of leaves around our fruit um, and that acts like an um, umbrella. The other problem is, which is maybe unique to South Africa is that, uh, or unique for any vineyards, is that um, we've got uh, a massive troop of baboons attacking um, our farm and wanting to eat our fruit. So there we've put a lot of effort in there through motorbike-driven uh, rangers to push them off the farm and, and, and make sure that they don't eat too much. Um, but unfortunately, we're dealing with baboons, so those guys are hugely smart, very strong, very agile. Uh, and it's a massive challenge for us. Yeah, that's definitely something other wine regions in the world don't don't encounter. <laughs> when my um, fellow winemakers in Europe complain about birds and bird damage, uh, then it's something for us. We can just chuckle about it. Um, we really have to deal with 300 uh, baboons g- going into our vineyards, and they're very agile. They're very fast. Um, they're very strong and very, very smart. So... It's not easy protecting our grapes against the, the baboons. Are they typically aggressive? You do get um, the alpha males are very strong and they can get very aggressive. What do you do to combat that? 
Yeah, so what what we do is we've got spe- very special game fences, um, all electrified, and we um, have to try and make sure that they don't uh, go over. But unfortunately, they build bridges, they take um, branches to to climb over, um, and then they don't feel the the electrified, you know, the electricity that that um, pulsates through the through the fence. Then I, on top of that, I have uh, staff members just on motorbikes, and then they uh, patrol the fence line, and then they have paintball guns. And if the baboons come too close or get it become a threat to them, uh, then they shoot at them with paintball guns, which is unpleasant, and the baboons then tend to run away from it. And uh, if that doesn't work, then we use bear bangers, which is like a firecracker, uh, and that makes such a massively loud noise that that irritates them, and then they, they start running away. So, But it's, it's, it's a massive challenge for us. Yeah, I'll say. And it sounds pretty constant. Um, they're kind of always around. It's not like a baboon season or, you know, like when you're harvesting they're around or not. It seems pretty all year. Unfortunately, it is, yes. Because they also like uh, the food that we have in our homes. Oh, no. So it's not only that they <laughs> go to the vineyards, but they also go into our homes. They open the fridges. They uh, uh, go through the <laughs> kitchen and uh, open the cupboards and take whatever they like. So they're really smart animals and they've got hands like we have. So they can open every door, they can open every window to, to get into the to the homes. Oh my gosh, it's crazy. It's like having a whole bunch of unruly toddlers running around your house, <laughs> breaking in. Just a, just a lot more powerful. And it is because they are so smart that they, they have the ability to do things that say you know, an insect attacking your vine or squirrels or other problems that other people would have. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> oh my gosh. And that's part of being in South Africa and the Cape Floral Kingdom is having that flora and fauna. Do you guys have any um, property under conservation or any conservation efforts in play? We are bordering the, um, the the Table Mountain National Park, which is a World Heritage Site. And the reason why it is a World Heritage Site is because of its plant diversity. And we link directly into it. So we are not as per se um, certified um, as a conservationist, but we definitely take part in the, uh, in the whole program. And... Um, because the farm itself represents um, the cradle of the South African wine industry and then the the direct link into the mountain um, that we're bordering, uh, we have government officials coming quite often to check whether we're removing alien vegetation and uh, supporting the, the indigenous vegetation that we have here at Bedlovating. So it's definitely definitely part of um, definitely part of um, our program and. Um, yeah, and the, and the government here is is really passionate, very strict about um, preserving uh, that heritage. You you look at um, so the reason why this World Heritage Site is not only because you know because of the uh, massive diversity, but also diversity is so large. So we are the smallest um, uh, floral kingdom, but also one of the most diverse. So if you look at the about a mountain range of thirty miles you find there is a, a larger plant diversity than entire Europe. And if you look at the diversity of the Western Cape, which is our province, um, it's larger than entire Northern Hemisphere. Perspective. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's really remarkable, but I, I guess it comes because we, um, we have so old, such old land, so old soils, 
Um, so obviously, um, a lot more plants were able to develop um, over 500 million years than, let's say, in the Alps over the last 100 million years. Um, so I think that's that's one of the reasons. Um, but only not only if you look at um, the plant life, but also the cradle of humankind is also in South Africa. So the oldest humanoids were found in South Africa as well. That is really crazy. And I feel like that's something that a lot of people don't know. Even um, with the concept of barbecue, that originated in South Africa, your brise, which I also found super interesting. Yeah. As when I visited, it was National Bry Day at your farm. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Look, bry is part of our culture. So barbecue, you know, but it's, it's understandable. We have really amazing weather. We have... Um, such a beauty you don't want to be indoors you want to be outdoors so you have a city that has got three and a half million people staying there um really amazing city beautiful old buildings um but then you've got those spectacular mountains and you've got amazing beaches so you don't want to be clogged into the you don't want to be uh, locked into a kitchen and be indoors you want to be outdoors and you want to celebrate that so i guess that's part of the reason why you know brying or having a barbecue in south africa is just such a big thing and I can attest to that. That really blew me away. Having visited other wine regions before, I mean, South Africa is just so incredibly gorgeous. You have mountains, you have oceans, all, all in one view with vineyards intertwined in between. It's, it's just really stunning. I agree. I agree. <laughs> Another thing that really struck me when I visited your farm was the community, so to speak, that you guys have created for the workers. Uh, prior to my visit for South, to South Africa, rather, I hadn't seen that in other regions. Many of them live on the farm. Yeah, so we, everybody who's working on the farm, or almost everybody who's working at Baden-Verwachting, is also living on the farm. Um, so we've got 34 families. We've just got over 100 children on the farm. The, uh, we've got our little kindergarten. We've got a crash. We've got a clinic. We've got a community center. Baden embraces the philosophy that you have to look after the land and the people who tend to it. The workers live in the staff village where water, electricity, and waste removal is provided free of charge, as is ongoing maintenance of the houses and yards. They also have a committee where they elect members to take care of their affairs. Sports teams such as soccer and rugby are organized for the workers' children. Transport is provided to schools as well as the local shops. And as much as uh, we look after our staff, they very much look after the farm as well. So it's it's really a great symbiosis between uh, the both of us. So whenever we have a problem, I have instantly people coming to, um, and helping. Um, and my staff is amazing. So it really works both ways. It's not just a social project that we started uh, or that my parents started in the 80s. Um, it's also something that has been hugely beneficial to the farm as well. It's more than a job to them. It's, it's their community and their home. And they, they seem to really care and, and be invested in the vines and the property yes, which is really cool yeah so we i mean every time i have new projects uh, my staff really get excited um we just cleaned out uh, our dam started silting up a bit and we decided to then make it a whole amazing feature so it's just meandering down the the mountain we've got several uh, pools now where the water just meanders down from one pool to another into the main dam and my staff is just so excited about it that they don't want to leave that site. They just want to continue working and getting it ready um, so they can use it for their own recreational purpose. But it's, it's such an amazing site. So first of all, all our staff, they um, are permanently employed. So I don't work with seasonal staff. Um, everybody who's, who gets up here in the morning works throughout the year. And um, 
you you know machine harvest the problem for me is that it really rips off the uh the fruit um very often the fruit bursts open and then you start losing flavors and your flavors start oxidizing and i'm trying to get better every year and i feel that machine harvest might be more efficient but it also takes you back um so it bruises the fruit i mean it rips open the fruit it starts oxidizing um and that's that's a big problem for me so all our fruit is hand picked and not only is it just hand-picked and means it doesn't get bruised, um, but it also means that my staff can can pick the ripe grapes and the grapes that are in a perfect condition. And um, if you find that there are greener bunches, we just leave them behind and go through a second time or maybe even a, a third time. So you need that kind of expertise from your staff, uh, and that's something that a machine can't offer you. So I think if you look for quality, you really want to do it by hand, or I want to do it by hand. And, um, you know, some, some farms say they want to do a machine because you can harvest at night. Um, but I find that our fruit is actually the coldest in the morning. So, so if you get in there um, at half past four or five o'clock, it makes a lot more sense to look for the quality rather than harvesting at night where your grapes are still warm from, from the day. Um, the hand picking is, is definitely, um, for me, a big must that we have to do in order to maintain the quality. And especially with Sauvignon Blanc, you might find other varietals can handle that a bit better, but Sauvignon is just too sensitive to um, to withstand uh, a machine just ripping it off the vine. Yeah, I think that quality definitely, you definitely see that in the wines, that it's meticulous and, and handcrafted. This episode of Behind the Bottle was produced in our offices in New York City. You can purchase any of the wines discussed today online at wine.com. For 10% off of your order, please enter Cape Classics at checkout. For more information on Cape Classics wines, visit capeclassics.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Cape Classics Wines. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next time. Until then, cheers! Cheers!